And the Bible reading this morning is from Philippians. It's going to be Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, good day, everyone. Lovely to see you. And what a privilege it is for uh, me to be with you today uh, and to think about Anzac Day together. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing. I, I first uh, remember going to Anzac Day in the city, in Sydney. I grew up, as I said, right in the city centre and with my family we would go. My grandfather was, one of my grandfathers was in the Second World War, but he didn't march. But I do remember we would go together with him um, with our little Australian flags and, and cheer on everyone. Um, and I really enjoyed the day. It was a festival kind of day. But I don't think I actually really understood what was going on at Anzac Day until my teenage years. And I found that out in a bit of a funny way. Um, it was around that time, the mid-90s. Do you remember people started going to Gallipoli to celebrate Anzac Day in Turkey? Has anyone actually ever done that? Has anyone done that here? Got a couple. Yeah. It looks amazing. But people didn't do that before. But the mid-90s, they started to do it. Um, and I remember seeing television footage of a Turkish veteran of Gallipoli. So a guy on the other side, um, being cheered by the Australian crowds as he sort of walked in front. And I was outraged. I thought, hold on, he's a baddie. We're the goodies. Why are we, and apologies to any Turkish people here, why are we cheering that guy on? We won. Well, what's going on here? And I think it was my dad, maybe it was my grandpa, um, slowly explained to me that um, the reason Anzac Day is a special day uh, is not because we celebrate Victory. It's very important that we understand that. Anzac Day is not about celebrating victory. Um, and certainly one of the criticisms about days like Remembrance Day or Anzac Day is that it's um, glorifying war. But of course, Anzac Day is not glorifying war. And I want to go even further. It's, it's not glorifying the dead. Um, many people die at work. Um, in fact, if you were to count up all the people who died in war versus all the people who died on farms in Australia, the number's pretty close. 
Um, so it's not about victory. It's not about celebrating um, war. It's not about celebrating the dead. So what is it about service men and women that we like to remember and honour and, and celebrate on Anzac Day? Well, it's all about that word um, service. Now, let's go back one. Service. Now, service is an interesting word because nowadays service just means... Uh, well, anything, you know, you go get your car detailed, it's a car service, you go get a coffee, uh, how can we serve you, that kind of stuff. But that's not the true essence of the word. The true essence of the word um, is to give without gain. Do you understand that? Do you, want, do you see what I mean? So it's, it's actually to, to give of yourself or of oneself uh, without the purpose of your own personal benefit, but rather for a greater good. Let me try and illustrate this um, by telling you about two men that I know who, who died Overseas, one called Matt and one called Tony. Both died um, uh, at the hands of terrorist insurgents in 2007. Matt, um, Matt was an SAS patrol commander, and he was on patrol in Afghanistan, uh, leading a six-man patrol. Uh, that patrol came under gunfire, uh, and Matt was shot and killed instantly. Um, he is a legitimate war hero, and uh, he was given the Medal of Gallantry. Um, uh, after he died, uh, he had many other medals of bravery besides that one. He's got a bridge named after him and a football. He's from Bellingen, if you know the town Bellingen. Uh, there's a football game played in his honour every single year. Tony, Tony died in Iraq in 2007 when his vehicle drove over an improvised explosive device, a roadside bomb, exploded, killing everyone uh, instantly. But Tony, um, he didn't get a medal. Um, he had no bridge named after him and uh, no football game played in his honour. Now, why is that? Why? Um, because when Tony was in Iraq, he wasn't there with the Australian Army. Tony had gone over as a private military contractor. Have you heard of those guys before, the security contractors who went over to protect the interests of companies overseas? Um, a word that can be used to describe those um, people who did that is a mercenary. You know that word, a mercenary? Um, there's nothing wrong with being a mercenary. You know, it's a, it's a capitalist world. We sell your skills. And, and people were employed, soldiers were employed to go over for, for a lot of money because um, it was very dangerous to protect um, the interests of companies. Now, Tony, even though he'd spent 20 years in the Australian Army, he left the Army and did that, and he died doing that. Now, this is not a judgment on being a mercenary or anything like that, but rather, I wonder if you can see the difference between both men and what they did. Whatever you call what Tony did, you can't call it service because it was for his own personal gain. Um, service is to give without gain. And I want to put to you, no matter your background here today, no matter whether you've thought about this or not, that there's something about service, this idea of sacrificial giving, um, that resonates deeply within all of us. And I can prove it. Um, because service, what we do on Anzac Day when we honour service, that's not, a, that's not an Australian thing. I used to think it was an, Austra an Australian thing um, and would include the New Zealanders for fun. You know, okay, this is what we do. That's not true. Every culture in every country around the world honour service not just the goodies. Okay? The Nazis honoured service. Heck, one of the reasons Hitler grew to prominence was because he'd served in the First World War. ISIS, honour service. You can visit any country in the world and there will be memorials for the dead who've, who've died to give without gain. Now, why is that? Why do you think service resonates 
so deeply within us. And not just service in war, any type of sacrificial giving. Why is that? Well, um, the wider world, the secular world, media, entertainment, uh, even philosophers, anthropologists, they would say that the reason we appreciate service, not just in war but in every element of life, is because it makes us feel good. So we, we give, but there really is a gain. <laughs> we give because we like the feeling of giving. So when it comes to war, when it comes to remembrance, we honour those who've served because we like serving ourselves and we know it's good to honour people who serve and we like to serve because it's self-serving. But, but I actually don't think that's true at all. I think that's completely wrong. And I want to say, um, I hope you see that that type of service where you're actually serving to serve yourself to feel good about your life, that's not service at all. <laughs> it's selfish. Now, I want to say to you, and this might be your first ever time in a church, you might not, not know where you stand with God, you might even not believe in God, but I want to say that I think service, this concept of give without gain, um, the reason it resonates so deeply in every culture, every community, every single individual who's ever lived, um, is actually evidence of something deep, profound and spiritual going on in our hearts. I think it points us somewhere else. Um, and where it points can only actually ever be understood by really grasping hold um, of Jesus, of, of who Jesus is, of what he did, but also about um, why he did it. And so today, that's all I want us to look at, is, is to try and get to the bottom of service, why it resonates, but also um, what Jesus has to do with it. To get there, mainly because you know, all of us have different religious backgrounds, potentially, and, and it might well be that this is your first time in church for a while. Maybe you came over Easter and you've decided to come back. Um, I just want to uh, make sure we're starting on the same uh, playing field when it comes to Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's the question I want us to consider, first of all. If someone came up to you on the street and said, who is Jesus? Uh, what would you say? How would you answer that? Um, how do you think people you know, you go to Tugra Lakes, you go to Westfield, uh, and you ask 100 people, how do you think they would respond? Well, of course, Jesus has always been a controversial figure. There's many opinions and disagreements about Jesus, but there are several facts about him um, that are generally agreed upon by, by all people, historians, Christian or not. Um, so let's just establish them. Jesus was a real person. He truly lived. You know, there are people who still believe Jesus is a myth. That's completely unprovable. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus was a real flesh and blood person who lived roughly 2,000 years ago um, from a know-nothing, nowhere town called Nazareth um, that we never would have heard of uh, unless Jesus was from there. It's kind of the equivalent of like Lake Macquarie or Woi Woi. Just a nothing town, you know, just... Just kind of there, and it's, okay. Or Cessnock, but Andrew Johns came from Cessnock, so we all know Cessnock. You know, that kind of town. That's Nazareth. Now, Jesus was largely anonymous. Do you know this? He was largely anonymous for most of his life. Up until his early 30s, he was a chippy. He was a carpenter, probably worked in his father's carpentry shop. Um, and yet in his early 30s, he entered into the world around him as a religious teacher and preacher. That's despite probably receiving very, very little religious or secular education at all. Now, Jesus grew popular at first, moderately popular. He always divided people, Jesus, but it didn't last. After a while, Jesus, as, as we know, we celebrated last week, I'm sure. He was arrested, tried, um, and executed. You could define the life of Jesus as saying, Jesus, a chippy and religious teacher who was murdered in his mid-30s. 
Jesus never wrote a book. He never fought a war. He, he, he never won a battle. No one ever drew a picture of what he looked like. He didn't even travel very far in his own life. And yet here's what's absolutely magnetically mesmerizing about Jesus. You know, scientists estimate 100 billion people have lived in the history of the world. 100 billion people. And yet of all those 100 billion people, the man we've just been thinking about is easily the most influential one of us all. H.G. Wells was an author and scientist of the 20th century. He wrote War of the Worlds, and probably responsible for developing the science fiction genre. Here's a quote that he says. If you can't read it, I'll read it out loud. I'm a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now that's a quote. The penniless preacher from Nazareth, the very center of history. The question is, why? How would you answer that? Why? What do you make of Jesus' influence? He never did any of the things that we normally associate with power and authority, with influence and importance. If you were to point to the most influential people in our world today, who are they? People with money? People with armies? People with land? People with authority? position. Jesus never had any of those things. And yet no one person has shaped the world you live in, regardless of what country you come from, more than Jesus. The question is, why? Well, I'm convinced the answer to that question um, lies at the very heart of the Bible reading that we had um, just given to us from the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible there, open it up in front of you to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't, I'm going to have some of the readings on the screen though. Um, and what I want to do is I want to point out to you three facts we learn about Jesus from this Bible reading. Now, this part of the Bible comes a few decades after Jesus lived and rose from the dead. Um, and it's actually the words they think um, of one of the first ever Christian songs, a poem about Jesus. Um, these are the words of, of that poem and song that have been inserted into this part of the Bible, put in by the original author to show us the truths that the church have always known about Jesus. So I want to point out to you three things, um, three staggering, shocking things that we learn about Jesus from, from this part of the Bible. The first one is this, Jesus is greater. By that I mean to say Jesus is far bigger, greater, more powerful, higher than you or I could ever possibly comprehend or imagine on our own. Look what verse 6 says. It's going to be on the screen there. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I just want you to actually consider the very first line there. The claim here is that Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, murdered in his mid-30s, is not just an ordinary man, although he is completely man, but he is also God. Now, this is from a song that the church had been singing from the beginning of Christianity. The claim from the very beginning is that Jesus is God. And you might have heard that so many times, you're quite numb to that allegation. <laughs> That fact, that claim, but let's consider exactly what that means. If we were to go outside tonight, if there's no clouds, and we were to get the most powerful telescope known to man and peer deep, deep, deep into the confines of this infinite universe that is still magically still growing, we would not see one millimeter that has not been made by, through, and for Jesus. Jesus was there from the beginning. He was responsible for the beginning. But it's not just outside, it's also in here. Would you consider every single soul in this room for a moment? Consider your own soul. 
The Bible says Jesus has known your soul since before the beginning of the creation of the world. More than that, that you were actually created for Jesus. Now, I, I, I want to say that um, I understand that's, a, that's an enormous claim. I mean, it might well be that you're at the position of your life uh, where you're not sure that that's true, um, or you've never really considered what that means before. Now, if that is you, I want to say, firstly, it's awesome that you're here. Secondly, you're in the right place. Um, Keep looking into the claim of Jesus' divinity. Keep looking into it. It really, really matters. Um, And it really matters because of evidence. Let me put it this way. If this claim isn't true, what does it mean about Jesus? Don't forget, what do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the most influential human being who's ever lived. His words have shaped the world we live in more than anyone else. So if the claim about Jesus being God that he makes about himself, that others, his earliest followers, made about being themselves, in fact, that he died for himself, if that's not true, what does it mean about him? Well, it means he's either the world's most prodigious liar, a maniac of incredible proportions, or something worse, something nefarious, sinister, insidious, evil, And now, if that's true about Jesus, then we have to step back and consider the very society and world we live in because it's been based around what he said. And one of the great challenges for all of us as individuals in our own faith is to look at the words of Jesus for ourselves, not inherited from our family, but for ourselves, and consider, who is the man who said these words? Are these the ravings of a liar, a lunatic, a criminal? Or actually... Is what Jesus is saying in these words pointing, providing evidence that this is not an ordinary man, that he is who he says he is? So that's the first thing I want you to know, that Jesus is higher than you and I could ever possibly understand. Verse 10 and 11 actually verify that there will be one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge that he is Lord. That's the claim about Jesus. It always has been. He is greater than we could possibly imagine. But as crazy as that claim might sound, believe it or not, it's not the biggest claim we see in this passage. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the most extraordinary claim. You see, the next thing that we notice in this part of the Bible is that even though Jesus is greater, higher, more powerful, he also made himself lower. Look at verse 7 here. Jesus, even though he is God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, how did Jesus make himself nothing? Well, you might be ready to get offended here because I've got to warn you, when this passage talks about making himself nothing, look at the last line. How does he make himself nothing? By by becoming like one of us. (laughs) Jesus steps down from the heavens and becomes a person. But he doesn't become a fully he doesn't come to earth as a fully grown human. He's not a superhero. It's not for. God became a baby. Oi, you seen babies before? <laughs> you held a baby, the vulnerable I can see a little baby there. A little vulnerable creature who dirties their nappies and God became a baby. Completely vulnerable. Completely, But it doesn't end there. Look what happens next. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. God, the creator of all life, 
the sustainer of all things that are living, dies. But not an ordinary death, death on a cross. Now, you know, the cross, I want you to think of the cross for a moment. The cross is now a symbol um, that is quite a positive thing. You know, you see it in stained glass windows or in tattoos or jewellery. Um, you see it in many, many different places. I, for example, was brought up hearing all about this man. Does anyone know who that guy is on the right? Anyone know his last name? Simpson? I was brought up hearing about this man um, and the story of Simpson and his donkey. The man on the right, his name is actually John um, Simpson Kirkpatrick is his real last name, but John Simpson. Now, in the First World War in Gallipoli, uh, we can't really comprehend what it must have been like, but young Australians full of bravado and, and courage um, and cluelessness went over to Turkey um, they landed in Gallipoli and then thousands and thousands and thousands of them were slaughtered, um, running uh, over trenches into machine gun fire. Now, the hardest, one of the most difficult things about this was not just recovering dead bodies, but recovering the wounded. Imagine the wounded lying there. To go out and get the wounded meant putting yourself in danger to go and collect the bodies to bring them back. Very, very few people had the bravery to do it. And yet this young man, 22 years of age, John Simpson, with his donkey... <laughs> over a period of just three and a half weeks, went and picked up hundreds of bodies, hundreds of the wounded, saved hundreds of lives, whilst all the while putting his own life on the line. Um, he only did it for three and a half weeks, because three and a half weeks after starting it, does anyone know what happened to him? He was killed. He was shot dead, collecting bodies of the wounded. He is an authentic hero of Australia. So much so that we overlook the, the inconvenient truth that actually he's English. He's not Australian at all. And he was only in Australia for a few years. The only reason he joined the Australian Army, it turns out, was he hated Australia so much he wanted a cheap fare out of the country. And so he joined up to try and go home. And he thought, oh, they're stopping at Turkey. How bad can that be? That's the story. But we overlooked that because, listen, he's worth it, I reckon. Now, you see on his right arm, is his left arm? His left arm. You see that sign? What's that? The Red Cross? Now, the Red Cross is a sign that symbolises what? Life, hope, peace, um, healing. Uh, it's used not just in the military, but everywhere. The Red Cross is a sign that indicates, well, a medical group who will come to, to help. The cross is a very positive feeling in our culture, but that's not the case at all in Jesus' time. Not at all. The cross was a symbol of such vile obscenity that the Roman people, at the time when the crucifixion happened... They could not speak of it. It was, impolite. it was more than impolite. It was considered rude to discuss what happened to people who were crucified because it was the most cruel and offensive type of death imaginable because it was not just the killing of a person. It was also their humiliation. You know John Calvin, this French um, theologian um, from ages ago, he said that most people, I think this is absolutely true, most people would rather get punched in the face than humiliated. Wouldn't, isn't that right? I'd rather get punched in the face than trip up. You know, we hate being embarrassed. We hate being ashamed. Shame is at the very core of so much of our fear. Crucifixion combined not just the physical destruction of a soul over a prolonged period of time, but they were lay up naked on a cross to be mocked mercilessly. Shame and murder together. That's what happened to God. And so we've got these two claims about Jesus right at the center of this passage, that Jesus is greater, greater than we can comprehend, but also Jesus is lower. 
lower than you can imagine, lower than the dirt. He threw himself beneath the gutter. Now, why would Jesus do this? And you see, my friends, this is the most striking and staggering part of this passage is the answer to this question that's revealed here. Why would Jesus take himself from the heavens to go down to the gutter? Well, you might say, well, because he loves us. And I'll say, yes, amen. Of course he does. And yes, that's there. But that's not what this passage says. There's something else going on here. There's another motivation at play. Now, I want you to look at verse 6 and 7 again. And I want to point out two things here, um, which are incredibly, incredibly important for every single one of us, even though they're not things about us, but rather they're about the one who made us. So I want you to notice two things we're taught and told in these verses. Number one, who was it? Who was it that made Jesus become nothing? Who was it who gave him the nature of the servant? Who was it who put him into human likeness? Himself. You see that? He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. The story of Jesus' death is not the tragic tale of a good man sacrificed mercilessly by evil people. That did happen, absolutely. But unlike the Anzacs, unlike the men and the women, so, so many brave men and women who've given their lives, who've gone overseas hoping that they would live, but being willing to sacrifice their lives, this is different to that. Do you see how it's different? Jesus wasn't hoping he would make his way through it. In fact, the more you consider the person of Jesus in the Gospels, in the biographies of Jesus, the more you become completely aware that from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus' target, his finish line, what he was aiming for was his death. That success in his life was his departure from it. His death was not an accident. It was intentional. He went there. So that's number one. Who made Jesus nothing? He made himself nothing. But now let me point out the second thing that you see here. And the way that I want to point this out is by getting you to take note of what it doesn't say. It's verse 6, that first bit in particular I want you to look at. See, verse 6, where it says, who being in very nature God. Verse 6 does not say, Jesus, even though he was God, took on the very nature of a servant, made himself nothing. It does not say, Jesus, so high, so mighty, so majestic, even though those things are true, he shrugged them off and took on the nature of a servant. In other words, that Jesus becoming a servant, Jesus giving of his all, wasn't somehow a clash of his divinity, a clash with his nature as God. No, no, what does it say? Look what it says. Jesus, who... Being in very nature God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. My dear friends, it is not in spite of being God that Jesus took on the nature of a servant, but precisely because he is God that Jesus did so. He didn't put on the nature, put off the nature of God to put on the nature of a servant. God has always been a servant. And the only thing that we see in Jesus' life that's different to that is how it is unveiled 
in the flesh in a way that we've never seen it before. We, we see it vividly displayed in Jesus. This is what God is like. Jesus is sacrifice. Jesus is service. Jesus is selflessness. Jesus is generosity. Every part of him giving, giving, giving. That is not a clash with the nature of God. It is the outcome of his nature as God. Listen to how Jesus puts it himself in some of the Gospels, but I'll use the one from Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That is not a clash with his nature. It is part of his nature. The king shrugged off his throne. He, he, he walked away from his heaven and he took up a cross. Now, who does he serve? Who does God serve? It's you. It's me. God came as Jesus to serve us. How? Well, we see here to give his life as a ransom. Now, what's a ransom? Well, a ransom is a price that's paid to free a life. Someone's captured and a ransom is a price that's paid to release them. It's actually happening at the moment in Russia and Ukraine. I don't know if you've seen this. There's prisoners on both sides and they're trying to do a, a prisoner exchange, one life for another. Have you seen that? You might have seen it in human history as well. A ransom is a price that's paid to, to free a life. Jesus has come to serve you by paying your ransom. Why? How? What? Well, he did it by not just taking on the nature of a man, not just taking on flesh, but dying and dying on a cross. Because on the cross, he was acting as your substitute and he died in your place. Now, one of the worst atrocities of the Second World War was, of course, the Holocaust. Uh, where the, the, the Nazis uh, murdered millions and millions and millions of souls of people. Um, they murdered many, many Jewish people, but they also murdered others, um, uh, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, but also Christians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you will know, the most famous of the Christian martyrs of the, of, um, of the Second World War. But another one um, was the martyrdom of this man, a Christian pastor by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. Now, um, Kolbe was imprisoned in Auschwitz, um, one of the most brutal camps, as many of you will be aware. And Auschwitz had a rule that if one person escaped, if anyone escaped, then 10 prisoners would be killed in their place. Can you imagine? And they did that to discourage escape attempts, of course. In August 1941, Max and his fellow prisoners awoke to the news um, that a man had escaped. And so all of the prisoners were dragged out, and then at random, 10 names were read out, 10 people who would die. One of the names read out was a man called Francis. Um, and upon hearing his name, he fell to his knees and cried out, Have mercy to the Nazi guards. Have mercy. I have a wife and children, but the guards wouldn't listen. They had no mercy. And so step forward, Maximilian Colby. Asked what he wanted, he simply said, I will take this man's place. The Nazis accepted his offer, and so Max and nine other prisoners were dragged away and um, murdered in a horrific, horrible, painful way. An innocent man dying the death of a criminal, the death that should have been reserved for an evil, wicked criminal in order to save the life for another. He paid his own life 
to ransom another one. Now, that's a powerful story, isn't it? A powerful, powerful story. And yet it's nothing compared to what Jesus has done. You see, Colby was an innocent man um, in some respects. A sinner, but an innocent man. But he died on behalf of this man, Francis, who was also an innocent man who'd done nothing particularly wrong. But Jesus does not die for innocent people. Jesus died for us because we're not innocent. All of us are sinners. And by sin, we don't mean the word like it's a naughty things that you and I. No, no. Sin means to live in God's world as if who he is and what he says does not matter at all. And the Bible is very clear that what this deserves is death. Jesus is the very one who has been sinned against. He chose to die on behalf of those who had sinned against him. You see, Jesus offers to serve you. Not because you're good and perfect and holy and religious and she'll be right, mate. Jesus offers to serve you because you're in desperate need of service. He gives without gain, offering us eternal life. Not because you're righteous, but why? Because this is what God is like. It's his very character and nature. And I want to say, I wonder if you can see then um, that connection between today, here at church as we're thinking about God and, and Anzac Day, between the cross and the sacrifice of so many. You know, we will tomorrow, uh, God willing, remember and honour the sacrifice of so many. And it's right that we do so. I'm utterly convinced it's right that we remember and honour their service with gratitude and thankfulness. Yet I also want to say to you that this is not the primary service you have benefited from in your life. It's not the most important sacrifice that's happened for you. And yet, just like we do on Anzac Day, this bigger sacrifice and service is what we should all stop and consider and then, under God, live our lives in the light of forever. Our lives should be changed by what's happened for us. I told you before what happened to, to Max Colby, but let me tell you about Francis. This is a picture of the man that he saved, Francis. He's Polish, and I cannot pronounce his last name. So I'll just go with Francis. Francis um, remained a prisoner for five more years, and yet he survived. He survived as a prisoner of war for five years under the Nazis. He was liberated by the Allies, and he lived another 50 years, dying at the age of... 93 in 1995. What did he do for those 50 years? Well, this is a quote he said at the end of his life. That's a picture of him just before he died. So long as I have breath in my lungs, I consider it my duty to tell people about the heroic act of love performed by Maximilian Kolbe. You see, he was thankful daily for the rest of his life. He never forgot his rescuer. He wasn't just rescued from death. His rescue changed the remainder of his life. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me just point out three things very, very quickly. Number one, I want you to think of that topic of service before. Remember, what does the wider world say? Service is something that we do because it makes us feel good. Service is something that we appreciate in others because that makes us feel good as well. 
I don't think that's true at all. I think service resonates profoundly and deeply within us for another reason. The Bible makes it very clear to us that we are different to the animals, to the rest of creation. That you and I, human beings, have been created in God's image. Now that separates us from every other creature on earth in a wide variety of ways. Being made in God's image means we were made to image God to the world watching on. But not just that, it also means we appreciate and understand things animals don't. We appreciate um, beauty and art. And we, we have a sense of, of understanding of, of love and, and also hatred, of morality. We intrinsically, every single one of us, value what God values because of his fingerprints all over us. And that's why when we reject the way God tells us to live, we all know it. All of us know deep within this isn't the right thing to do. And I'm convinced the idea of service, this idea of service, give without gain... It resonates within all of us because that is what God is like. That is who our God is. And this evidence points us to the fact that service is something good and honourable and noble and righteous, not just in Anzac Day, but in every area of life because that's who God is. And God has made us to appreciate and understand that. Second thing I want you to think of today it's particularly for you here if you are a Christian. If you're a Christian and you know you're a Christian, you're a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, well, it's worth understanding that this passage was not just originally written to point us to the reality of what Jesus did on earth, but also to point us to what we need to do as his followers. Let me read out verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. The Christian is called to have our lives shaped by the shape of the life of Jesus, to live as Jesus did, which is what? To do what? To serve. Jesus died and served us by dying in our place. So for us, we are called to serve him and in turn to serve others. Now, what does the New Testament tell us about serving others? Well, primarily it talks about two different ways. Number one, the Christian is primarily given gifts to serve one another, other Christians. To serve your local church. To give of your time, your efforts, your energies and your money. Not just in the things that you love doing, but even some of the things you don't like doing. In order to serve Christ and serve one another. To sacrificially give without gain. That is why God has joined us together, gathered us together as his church. But secondly, the New Testament makes it clear that each Christian is to serve the wider community. But not in feeding the homeless and, and housing and people who need it and giving food to the hungry. Those things are very important indeed. We should absolutely do them, but not as a matter of primacy. No, no, no. Primarily, the Christian is to serve the outside world with evangelism, with telling them the truth about Jesus. You don't offer a dying person. Um, if you've got the cure for, for death, you don't offer a dying person um, you know, the, the opportunity to fix up their sheets and fluff their pillows. No, no, you administer the cure for death. And that's how we are to serve. And finally, I just want to say to you, if you're not a Christian here today, will you accept the service that he's offering? Verse 10 and 11 tell us there's a day coming when every knee will bow before Jesus. And what that means is that one day when Jesus returns, every one of us here will bow before Jesus. Those of us who love him in worship and praise, those of us who don't in terror and judgment. The great news is that you can Take Jesus' offer up today. Accept his service 
That's what he has come to live and die for. All you need to do is say yes. And so that's what I'm going to finish our time together doing. I'm going to pray now. And if you're in the position of your life where you'd actually like to accept the service Jesus has given you, I can't think of a better day than the day before Anzac Day, 2022, to not just remember the sacrifice of so many, but sacrifice the sacrifice of the one who gave it all so we can have it all. And if you'd like to, to do that, um, why don't you pray along inside your head uh, with me as I pray um, and accept this offer Jesus has been given. Why don't we all bow our heads as I pray? Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I do not deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, to serve me, so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler, as my Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.